God bless guys and welcome once again to Research Podcast and on today's episode we take a final look at the doctrine of predestination and what a humbling doctrine it truly is. It makes everything of God's goodness and love and grace and nothing of man's work, causing a regenerate heart to rejoice and give praise to Almighty God who has done such a great and wonderful work, one in which we are so undeserving of. He's so good. Um, and before we get started, I just want to quickly, really briefly recap what we reflected upon last time we were together. We picked out a couple of verses from the Old Testament that really spoke on the, the doctrine of election or predestination. And we focused on the story of Jacob and Esau with a quick glance at what the Apostle Paul comments uh, are on it. And we reflected upon the, the similarities and the differences that are given to us. And as we focused and considered those two, those two twins or those two brothers and their differences, we as humans would have been more inclined to believe that the elder brother or the older brother would have been the one more worthy of election since he was, let's just say, the, for lack of words, the better brother. But since God does not judge based upon character, but, uh, but from mercy, it was not the elder who was elected, but the younger who was much more troublesome that was elected. And as a result, we see that God is even more glorified because we see that it is purely from the power of God that he can transform someone like Jacob. And lastly, we consider the fact that Jacob's selection was something determined not from his choices, of which there were nothing to boast about, but rather it was decided even before they did anything. And that's the point that the, the writer says that, that they, had, they had done or they hadn't done anything worthy, good or bad, to determine or predetermine a, a choice like that would qualify Jacob or qualify Esau worthy of, of election. Uh, so if you haven't heard that episode, you know, part one as well for that matter, uh, then please do so before you continue on listening just to gather some uh, groundwork that we lay down in those two, two episodes as we bring this episode to an end. But today what we will consider or what I hope to do in this final uh, podcast on predestination uh, is essentially look at the Apostle Paul and then look at the words of Christ. And those are the two things that I want to focus on. So there's a lot to, to draw out from these texts. So we're going to be going through as brief as possible. Um, there's a lot of groundwork to cover. So let's just get straight to it. We're going to go to Romans chapter 8, verse 28 to 30. Romans 8, 28, 30. And so if you have your Bibles, just follow along with me because I'd love for you to see this in the text with me and not just hear it from me. Romans 8, 28 says this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. I want to begin with this portion here as it has been subject of much mistreatment. 
by many interpreters who use this text to support the claim that God in actuality chooses his elect based upon their efforts or their faith or their or whatever certain actions that determine whether you are you qualify for election or qualify for salvation. Um, and so let's let's for a moment just disregard all the other portions that we've kind of considered that disprove that that thought. And let's just focus on on this um this verse alone or this portion alone let's just disregard all that clear teaching that god chooses not based on performances or one's decisiveness or to choose or whatever it is but purely let's just focus and isolate this verse to see if indeed what they say about this verse or that what they say about this text is accurate the argument goes as follows based upon this text they say that the way that God chooses his elect is by looking down the corridors of time and sees who would place their faith in Jesus. And based on that, or based on those who decide for Jesus, they are then the ones that Jesus comes and saves. And they derive this from that word here, for new. For new in, in, um, in this portion where he says, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined. So it stems from that one word in the Greek, I believe it's pronounced uh, prognosko. And they thus say that it is based upon all those who look at Christ or look to Christ, that it was them that they become predestined. Then they're called, then they're justified, then they are glorified on that great day. So taking away the fact that we already seen clearly that it is God who elects in eternity past, way before anyone can make any choice, which is so important to us at this moment because it clearly teaches that he doesn't decide based on actions. That is what we clarified in, in the story of Jacob and Esau and many other portions that we could have used. But it's specifically that, that he doesn't elect based on any action. But let's just disregard that for one moment and just like pretend we haven't looked at that. Can they make the claim that indeed this is what this verse or this word is teaching us? Can this be interpreted or understood in the way that they present it to us? And if you've been following on on our podcast for now, I'm pretty sure you can guess as to what I'm going to say next. And that is, no, they cannot. That is a poor interpretation of that. Their claim is that this word is a passive word, implying that because it's a passive word, that God watches as a spectator and essentially he's observing who it is that will decide for Christ. And this becomes the determining factor for their election. But this word used here by Paul does not suggest to us that it is a passive uh, that it is passive in the sense that he stands and, and observes who would choose for Christ or who would decide for Christ. For its usage isn't unique to this verse. It's actually found elsewhere. Um, the Apostle Peter actually uses the same, same word. And he doesn't use it in the way that many of those who hold this view describe it. Its usage elsewhere doesn't imply that God is purely taking in information about a person, awaiting to see what their response is, and based on their response, He will then act. No, rather, it speaks of a special relationship that is from God's part to His people. 
this knowledge speaks of intimacy so much so that the Jews would use this phrase or this word of knowing or foreknowing as a way to describe the intimacy between a husband and a wife. And not only that, but like I said, this same word is used in reference to, to Christ by the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 1.20, where Peter says of Christ, he, speaking of Jesus, he, he was foreknown by who? By God. So he was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Now, if we were to consider the way they interpret this word, what does this teach us about Christ? That God stood at a distance and watched Christ to see what he would do. Then he would send him as a savior, depending upon how he responded to the suggestion. How foolish is that? Clearly, it is not the way to be understood or, or to comprehend that word, but rather that Christ was ordained, elected for the very task of saving a people even before the foundations of the world. That is clear from that verse. We cannot escape the reality that predestination is always connected to the love of God. And in particular, this word for knowing, right? Re that it refers to this intimate or special love that is not given to everybody. Much like how you would love everyone, but you will not love everyone in the same way you will love your spouse. In the same way a wife will love her husband or a husband will love their wife. They receive that maximum expression of their love. And this is what we spoke of last episode. The difference between the benevolent love of God and the saving love of God. That there's differences between those miles apart. Therefore, we cannot take this interpretation that is given to us of Romans 8.28 to mean that God looked into the future in a, in a mystical way and saw who it was that would choose him. And of those who would choose Christ, he would then predestine them. Those who he predestined, then he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he would then glorify. No, that is not what that, that passage is saying to us. That is not what we see. Clearly, it speaks of this intimacy, this love between God and His elect. I pray that that's clear to you. Now that we've kind of taken this verse in isolation and dealt with it, with the fact that it, it simply does not teach a passive action of seeing who will respond to His calling and then act. No, I mean, given the fact that you look at the order that those who he foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, then he caused. You know, it, it can't be like he called and then watching to see who responds to that calling. He then predestined and then he foreknew or whatever it is that they want to say. No, it doesn't make sense. But, but now that we've kind of dealt with that, that verse in particular in isolation and see if that interpre interpretation holds up. Now we can bring all those things that we've seen prior to this. No, it implies that for he loved us prior to the foundations of the world and then set in motion a plan to save them. And we can then draw what we have already learned about predestination and see how it strengthens this even further. I mean, we've seen in, in the previous two, two portions, the two talks that we've done. Firstly, 
we have seen that if it truly was based upon a response to the gospel, then what that teaches us is that we too can act favorably towards our enemies and decide whether we want to love them or not. Because, you know, we, we've observed them and we've, we've kind of judged them and said, okay, look, based upon their actions, I'm going to show them this love. But that's not how we ought to love. That's not how he loved us. He loves us first and then we know what love is and therefore we're able to love. The second thing that we've looked at, the, the second point that we've considered in terms of predestination is that we have seen in scripture that clearly God explicitly says that he saves not upon behavior or action or whatever, but rather based upon his desire to show mercy, to glorify his nature, to glorify himself. That is the purpose of election. He doesn't judge like we judge, like we have judges that base their judgments upon our actions, but that's not how God does things. He sees the heart. And the third thing that we've seen in, in this series or in this, this doctrine is we've seen that scripture is clear about our spiritual condition, lay that on top. And that's why we started off with the nature of man and regeneration, that our condition, uh, or the condition of man is, is fallen. That if it were based upon man to choose God, then no man would be saved for none seek after God. No one does. And this further disproves that, that interpretation of that text because if God were to await for a response, if he were to look down the corridors of time and see who is going to respond to the gospel, he would be waiting a long time and, and, and a lot of people are going to hell. In fact, everyone would be. They would never respond to him. They are only able to respond after God regenerates them, as we saw in the doctrine of regeneration with all those texts that demonstrate this so clearly that God has to act first. But before we leave this text, please see with me this clear pattern that we find in this verse. I say that it is God who foreknew, God predestined, God caused, God justifies, God glorifies. Please point out to me where man's efforts are ever addressed here. Please show me where in this verse do we even get a whiff of man's will or desire. Where in this text are we shown that we take an active action towards God? All the active works are done by God. God did this. God did that. God foreknew. God predestined. God caused. God justifies. God glorifies. We are the passive ones that receive this. Look at verse 28 one last time. And note with me, firstly, that it is God's will or purpose that is the cause of all those things listed. But secondly, notice with me, the only thing that is mentioned of man is that all of these things work together for our benefit and for his glory. We are foreknown, or we are foreloved if you prefer, and thus we are predestined for salvation, and thus we accord. It does away with that, that thought that, you know, if you believe in predestination, you don't have to go and preach there's no need since we're all chosen. That's, that's wrong because that word there called implies that you have to go out preaching the word of God. You have to go and, and make that announcement so that they can hear that call. So it undoes that. 
And, and, but anyways, that's another point to cover maybe another day. And those called are justified, as it says. And those who are justified, that is made right, are then given that final stage of being transformed to fit his new heaven and earth at glorification. At our glorification. I think this ought to be sufficient. It's sufficient evidence for the doctrine of predestination. But we are not done yet. We still require one final element to this doctrine, and that is to see if indeed Christ too taught this, that he upholds this. As we've been previously been doing in all the other doctrines, all the other talks, the aim is for us to see that the doctrine that we, we present uh, is found in the Old Testament. It is found in the apostles' writings and, you know, and expounded there. And, of course, that we got to make sure that, you know, it's not something that we make up or independent of what Jesus taught. Does Jesus teach this in the Gospels is what we like to finish with. And that's exactly what we want to do. So turn with me, John, chapter 15, verse 16. We only look at one. There are many verses that we could look at, but just for time's sake, we're just going to look at John 15, 16. And the Word of God says this. So John 15, verse 16 says, You did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. I'm always amazed at how reluctant we are to accept that indeed it is God who holds the, the prerogative to choose whom he pleases. That The moment that he holds claim to his right. We bring him into our courts, as it were, and pronounce him to be unfair or unloving or whatever. We bring him to question him, right? That if he exercises his right, his prerogative to choose as God, as creator, we immediately bring him to our court and, and we start questioning him. Even with such clear teaching, we still wish it wasn't so. And after considering and speaking with other fellow Christians who may not hold to this view or, or that much, something that uh, I've realized is that part of it is because we all have people whom we care about, whom we love. And the thought of them suffering in eternity hurts us. And that is where we get this sense of, injustice, unfairness, whatever it is, when we, we start talking about the doctrine of predestination. But that thought ought to be a driving force to us who are Christians, a driving force to call upon the Lord to walk in them, a driving force for us to go out and share the gospel even further, with greater pains and tears. I mean, other than the fact that we are told in Scripture that we must preach, for it is from the hearing of the Word of God that comes faith, we, we have this element, this truth, that we see the severity of what awaits those who reject Jesus, including those whom we care about. That's why I say that given this truth of predestination shouldn't be used as an excuse to not preach or evangelize, 
but quite the opposite. It should plummet us into a deep desire to share the gospel even further. Our fundamental problem is that we wish to hold on to certain good qualities that we have in ourselves or that we recognize and we declare them as worthy of salvation. But salvation comes only to those who God reveals to them that those qualities are not good qualities. You are not good. You are fundamentally evil. And that we must dispose ourselves of any claim of goodness. To sense our uttermost dependency upon God's mercy as a sinner, not as a good person. We don't hold claim to our goodness. We have to hold claim to His goodness and our wretchedness. That is salvation. We need to see that need. Understand that we do love those people that, that are in our lives but they are walking in clear rebellion and hatred towards a holy God. And that should break our hearts. And that should drive us to proclaim the gospel even more. How more fervently, how more passionately, how more brokenhearted would we preach if we understood and believed this doctrine more? If we understood the realities of this, the hard truth is that we are undeserving of His grace and the only thing that we deserve is hell for all eternity. All of us without any exception. And it is only by the grace and mercy of God that He elects or chooses a people for Himself. And that is what we are seeing here in this wonderful verse that it is Jesus as one third of the triune God selecting His few for a specific purpose. You see that. But before we consider what is expressed here, let us hear what the opposing views say of this verse so as to create a, an even playing field. When we say that this text is clear evidence that there is an election, and this is not the only one, but we're just going to use one, that this teaches election, that this teaches predestination, a choosing that takes place, not on our part, but in, in, in God's part. The only way that they can refute this claim is by suggesting that this choosing that this verse clearly speaks of is a specific one, a unique choosing that occurs, the choosing of the twelve, because it's clear that he's referring to the twelve and no one else. To which we agree, yes, he's speaking to the twelve at this 100%. The text is Jesus speaking to the twelve and stating that he has chosen them. So how do we argue that this is to be extended or, or it reaches beyond the twelve? For that we require the rest of the context that surrounds this portion. Context, 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 we always say is so vital. We cannot just take one verse and say whatever we want. I mean, we can. That's really easy. We can make any verse say whatever, it, whatever we want if we disregard what comes prior and what comes after. So let's consider firstly what he says to the 12, and we'll use simple reasoning that anyone could easily just see why we hold to the view that it is God who chooses. Christ says to his disciples directly that it was not them who showed any interest in choosing Christ. And not only that, but we see that as he presents this, 
the statement, there is not one argument peeped out by any of the disciples. You know, they don't defend it. Then I say, no, Jesus, you were wonderful when we followed you, we saw, we heard of you. No, I mean, Peter was there. Peter, the fiery one that always defended claims, right? He remains still. He remains silent. He acknowledges the truth of that claim. That should be the response of all believers, that to remain silent. Because no one seeks after God. But if they did not choose Christ, then who is the initiator of this pursuit? Jesus says that it was His choosing, that they were elected by Christ. The desire to have them came from Him and not the other way around. And furthermore, not, not only was it Christ who chose them, but He also gives His reasoning as to why He chose them. He uses the word appointed there, I appointed you, which gives us the understanding that they were chosen for a specific duty at which our naysayers respond, you see, right there. It is specific. It, it, is, it is given with a specific duty given to the 12. And we agree with that claim. Yes, 100%. He is speaking to the 12. But what we must do then is identify what that duty is. In that very verse, we are told that the purpose for them being chosen is so that they may go and bear fruit and that their fruit should abide. Now, since we are able to identify that purpose or that specific election was so that they may bear fruit, we can then back up a little and take in the rest of that portion. And once we do that, when you begin to do that and take in the rest of the context, something becomes evidently clear. That the same expectation of bearing fruit is not only expected of the 12 disciples, but of Whoever abides in Jesus, whoever abides in Jesus is expected to bear fruit. We see that though he is indeed speaking to the disciples, we can easily see that what he says to the twelve specifically is also said of anyone that comes to him and is engrafted into him in a more in inclusive language such as, every branch or whoever abides in me and I in him. He must bear fruit because they are connected to the vine. So all those who abide in Christ, all those who abide in the vine then are, that are grafted into this vine are engrafted with the purpose of producing this fruit. So the connection between the fruit bearing branches and Christ's election of the twelve becomes a little more apparent because since we share in the same purpose of bearing fruit, we must then also safely assume that our election too is implied since there is a clear connection being made between branches for fruit and Christ's choosing. It is made evident in verse 16. So we conclude then that we are chosen for Christ for the purpose of bearing fruit. But more to the point, the doctrine of election is something that clearly was held and taught by Christ. The disciples did not dispute it, but humbly accepted it as truth. And the apostles would only develop this doctrine further in the epistles. Now, like I said, we won't have time to go through all of them. And that's something that you may want to consider and look at all the verses in your own time that Jesus speaks upon election or choosing. But we won't go into all those portions, you know, uh, or, or verses that Jesus speaks of. 
again, if, if you're considering this, you know, if you're interested to read further, you can check out these verses that I'm just going to dish out heaps quick. Check them out. John 15, 19, John 6, 70, John 13, 18, Matthew 24, 24, Matthew 24, 31. Jesus speaks of election. Jesus speaks of choosing or speaks of choosing. But for now, let us leave it there and wrap things up. And I just want to really want to finish with a comment and a final, I guess, maybe assignment that you guys can, can do yourselves in your own time. One thing that is clear and indisputable is that we all know that the doctrine of election or predestination are biblical and true. We all deep down inside our hearts know that, that this isn't a lie, that this isn't something we made up. This is clear, clearly taught in scripture. Um, we know deep down inside that it doesn't lie within man's capability to choose Jesus, but rather it is God who elects and chooses us for salvation. And even those who protest and argue that we must decide for Jesus, that we must choose Jesus, that we must place our faith in Jesus, and there's this emphasis upon what we have to do, they too believe this to be true deep down inside. Because all you have to do is really just listen in to how they pray. Their prayer life. They believe in the sovereignty of God in the same way we believe in the sovereignty of God. And they believe in the, the sovereignty of God to, that, that is expressed in His choosing and electing a people for Himself. They believe it too. All you have to do is just next time, just hear one of them who believes that man must choose God. Just, just listen in to how they pray for a sinner who they're preaching the gospel to. Do they not pray and ask God that he would do the work? Do they not ask God that, that he would change them? Don't they pray and ask God that, that God would open up their hearts or that God will open up their eyes? That they would have an encounter with God? Aren't they asking God that God would do this in them? If they truly believe that this doctrine is not a biblical or a true one, then wouldn't they be better off spending their time presenting the gospel in a, in a better, more compelling manner instead of praying for God to do something? Doesn't it seem more logical to spend their time devising a better arguments, better presentation, a better everything if it depends upon man? Deep down inside, we all know that it depends solely upon God's work to change the person. It starts with God and it ends with God. What sort of God do you serve if you think that the Almighty God could be made still by a speck of dust on earth that He created? Because that dust, that piece of dust, did not will Him to enter in His heart? God shatters the heart of stone like Moses smashed the tablets after descending the mountain. God can override your will or unbelief. Let me rephrase. God must override your will and unbelief. And He has done so. God's salvation plan is not steered by the designs of, of me, man, but it is steered only by God's will. Don't get it twisted by superstar preachers who teach heresy to thousands. God is the one 
who's in control. He is sovereign. It is not based upon a piece of dust and their desire to express anything. No, it is God who changes us so that we may see his glory. The overwhelming amount of scripture that speaks of this is seed so much in our hearts that when we pray, we pray with the knowledge that it is only God's hand that can do the work. Scripture speaks for itself and it doesn't need anyone. It doesn't need me to defend it. We just need to share it. Look at it. Look at the scriptures. You will see it clear as day there. I pray that after considering these three talks and predestination, I pray that you have been blessed and God is glorified. Till next time, be blessed and thank you for listening.